0: I'm looking at a world whose institutions seem designed to repress humans.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the feedback loop where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. I'm your host, Stephen Parton, coming at you from Singularity University. This week, we have Douglas Rushkoff, whose background and list of accomplishments is so varied and vast that it would take far too long to properly explain. However, some key points is he has done a ton of work with media theory and digital economics, which he is a professor of at the City University of New York. He's also published over a dozen books, the themes of which are quite clear from titles like Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Program or Be Programmed, and his most recent book, Team Human. Additionally, he's a columnist, a graphic novelist, and a documentarian. Now, much of his work pulls on his deep roots in the early cyberpunk culture, where he's said to have collaborated with many profound figures who have helped shape-free thinkers for the past 30 years. His Wikipedia may say it best when it declares that, quote, Rushkoff worked with both Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary on developing philosophical systems to explain consciousness, its interaction with technology, and the social evolution of the human species, end quote. The preface that Reshkoff gave to his 1994 book, Siberia, Life in the Trenches of Cyberspace, may provide even more insight. In it, he describes the book as exploring, and I quote, a very special moment in our recent history, a moment when anything seemed possible, when an entire subculture, like a kid at a rave trying virtual reality for the first time, saw the wild potentials of marrying the latest computer technologies with the most intimately held dreams and the most ancient spiritual truths. End quote. I'd argued through my own exploration of Rushkoff's work that he is quite irreverent when it comes to mainstream technology, which I think largely stems from the fact that he feels the internet could have been so much more the seemingly exploitive and sterile world that it has become, but his blunt critiques are easily balanced by his obvious abundance of experience that he's articulated fantastically into so many meaningful insights. I absolutely love this conversation with Douglas as we truly just had a lot of fun with it and yet we still got really deep into the weeds on some big topics, some of which was how technology oppresses the human condition and exploits us how our narratives guide our behavior and our expectations, the ideas of consumerism and freedom, identity and ego, universal basic income, politics, and a whole bunch more. And as always, if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to keep hearing the content from us, please give us a rating, share us on your social media, or shoot us a message with your feedback or recommendations to singularityradio at su.org. To that end, without further ado, let's jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the podcast, Douglas Rushkoff.
0: Oh, it says recording. I guess it heard you.
1: I feel like this is a metaphor for so much of what we're going to talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah, it knew. It knew. It sensed. I mean, I asked you for permission verbally, and then it did a... uh kind of a retinal scan, body, <clears throat> biofeedback thing, and it could sense that you were consenting. Yeah,
1: I have my hand on a, a scanner, a heart rate monitor, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the way that that, you know, sexual relations should be negotiated at this point, too.
1: Right. You've seen Demolition Man, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the,
1: I feel like that's a big metaphor for your belief system when they're having sex, and he's like, why don't we do the old-fashioned way, the messy way? <laughs>
0: I do remember as a young man being surprised that sex was like wet. (laughs) And gross. Well, it left this puddle in the in my my college bed, there's like this puddle and stuff. And I mean I was proud of it, but also just shocked.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't even feel like I want to try to steer this anywhere. Let's just keep going. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. No, but that's not I mean, once the singularity
0: comes, there's gonna be no more. Wet spot to deal with. You don't think we can code that? Code some messiness in there. I guess, but that's the whole thing. We that's that's what they do when they want to try to make computers seem more real and human. Is they just code some randomness, as if what makes us human is noise. And I think they've got it backwards. I think that that stuff that they're trying to code out, all the the junk DNA of of human life and interaction, is where the cool stuff is, you know, that's where counterculture happens. Those are the, the weird patches, you know, the, the, if David Lynch would not exist in an auto-tuned
1: universe. Yeah. That, that code, that messiness carries some of the bad stuff that we're trying to fight against at the same time though. Right. Does it? I don't know. I don't know that it
0: carries. I think the bad stuff is mostly when it gets too discreet when it gets too okay, well, what is going on here? Well, now let's figure it out. Oh, there's these Jews and the Jews are saying that we should let more immigrants into the country and then those immigrants are going so let's kill the Jews and they kill Jesus. You know, I think when things get too, and instead if it's, what if it's like, everything's kind of messy, you know? It's like six of one half dozen of the other, national boundaries aren't really real, they're kind of these invented things. So we can't be quite as hard line about them because they're just sort of, you know, man-made ideological, you know, uh, social constructions. And-
1: is, that a, is that a result of the technology, do you think? Or is that kind of just part of the human condition? I mean, we have this...
0: It's part of the human condition, but the absolutism may be part of the technology.
1: You don't think we've always kind of seen things in that black and white, you know, us versus them mentality. And we're maybe just seeing that carried into the new mediums of communication.
0: I think there's us and them, but only in extreme periods, you know, so it's like, oh, there's us and then there's our neighbors and we're hanging out. And then some king or lord decides that the other one's lord is you know, on his territory. And all of a sudden, then they have to convince us, oh, well, those are them. And we're us. And you've got to go to war against them because they want what's yours. And and it's got nothing to do with all those poor people on the ground fighting the thing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's always been the case. Do you do you think that like that fear of ambiguity is maybe one of the biggest driving forces? I know you talk about, you know, the anti human agenda in the start of your book that is kind of built into our technology, our markets. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, it's always been there. I mean, almost any system that we use, I mean, it's not some great, you know, I guess, you know, Santa Fe Norbert Wiener systems theory thing. But any, you know, normal sort of system that we've developed is always going to be a bit you know, a bit black and white about stuff, a bit oversimplified. And I feel like when most of them are executed, we understand that there's this give and take. And it's why we then have sort of human judges to make exceptions to this and that, because there's all these individual cases and stuff that doesn't quite fit. But when we try to, to render it all into a a, a kind of a binary programmable format that some of these polarities end up exacerbated.
1: Yeah, it feels like we're doing a lot of programming of reality tunnels. We're kind of creating programmed reality tunnels, as Robert Anton Wilson would say. We're, We're basically converting what language and perception in our belief systems started us off with and putting them into the technology. So now... You know, that's the echo chamber, that's the social media tribalism, I think, and the radicalism we're seeing in in the political sphere and and the way we think about ourselves and other people.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you would have thought that the availability of all these different reality tunnels would have engendered a more countercultural fluid understanding of the world. 'Cause I can hop to this, to that, to this. And in the earlier internet days, because you might inhabit five different usenet groups in the same night, you know, you become five different people, five different genders, five different religions, five different, you know, outlooks on physics. And now it's like you get trapped in one and you just go down and you become this sort of really predetermined
1: extreme version of of yourself. And that's not that's not so good. Yeah, I always feel like I have a hard time reconciling my thoughts on technology because I think I got lucky in my generation, um, 32. So for me, I you know I had AOL as like a surprising, amazing new thing that I could access. And if somebody called, it kicked me off. But it was still this revelatory thing for me. And then I was playing video games early on. I mean, I grew Please up in- turn off- you didn't just turn off call waiting when you went on. <laughs> no, the the parents wouldn't let me. I had wow. different Stars, kinds of firewalls. Some,
0: some, there was some thing you could hit and it would turn off call waiting. Oh well. Wow.
1: We got that second phone line, and I felt bougie as could be. I felt privileged. To, yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up in southern Ohio, and it was all spiritual. It was all very much, you know, um, Catholicism and farming and a lot of religion, and there was no diversity. And I remember very clearly some of. The people I played video games with were these like uh, one of my best friends. I I don't know who he is to this day, but he went by the name Leo and he was this black atheist kid. And it completely blew my mind how good we got along. And to me, that my early exposure to the Internet made me question everything. But it was during that time that you talk about.
0: Yeah, and it did. I mean, and that's why, you know, folks like Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson were all equating the net with psychedelics, because you would have this experience, and then it kind of blew everything open. It's like, oh, these people that I thought I didn't like, I do, or look at these ideas, look at those ones. And it, it, it really helped, I mean, because it was such a little programmed world. And it was so clear how it was programmed that you would then leave the computer and look at the regular world and say, oh my gosh, look how programmed this is. Look at where we put doors and windows and 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 elevators and, and revolving doors and money. And so all the different systems you start looking at and traffic lights versus traffic circles and it's just, oh my gosh, we made so many choices here <laughs> you know, about how things are and, and what we, how we think the world works. And yeah, and, then, and, and, and those of us who were lucky enough to play with it before it was uh, uh, kind of as limited or as set as it is now, we got that, uh, that
1: sort of dose of open source reality. Yeah, it makes me think of like some kind of like, I don't know, Prima Materia, some kind of like ingredients list that has slowly been diminishing. You know, we've lost the ability to play with as many different kinds of colors on our palette because it's continually gotten more and more locked down. So we have less of this inspiration, less ambiguity to kind of spark an epiphany.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the irony is, of course, I mean, as you know from the day, you know, the number of colors on the palette Digitally has increased, you know, we used to have 16 colors to play with then we had 256 and then I remember when it went up to millions of colors you know, so you didn't have to I mean, this is like inside baseball, but when you made a computer program or a CD-ROM of stuff back in the day you chose 256 colors to be the palette for your CD-ROM. And those were the only colors you could use. I mean, you could use lots of little pixels, but that was your palette. And, and you'd be surprised how fast 256 colors goes when you're trying to create really rich, you know, rich looking things. Uh, So on a certain level, right, right now we don't, you don't have to, no one's out picking what their palette's going to be for their, for their images. You get infinity or whatever close to it of, of, Of colors, but at the same time, there's a a a rigidity or a brittleness to
1: to the the resulting world. Do you think that's a good point? Do you think the freedom is actually a bit damaging in a way? In other words, I heard this talk from I think his name is Sadhguru. He did a talk at Google. And he was talking about the fact that what we're suffering from now is too much freedom. And and that's why we're drawing these boundaries around our nations and our tribes. And we're, we're actually putting ourselves inside the reality tunnels because the internet has almost given us so much freedom that it's daunting and, and the amount of choice scares us. Well, I mean, I think we have to distinguish
0: between true freedom and choice. You know, so yeah, we have lots and lots and lots of choice. And this was... Not to be conspiratorial, but this was the plan initiated by Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson back in the 40s, right after fascism. They said what we have to do is to create an American reality that's packed with choice, lots and lots of choices, even if they're not real choices. Someone should be able to walk in a supermarket, see an entire aisle of essentially the same laundry detergent that they're supposed to use and experience it as choice, which it is. There's gain, there's all. there's tide, there's whisk, there's, you know, bold, there's so many of these things, and they're all basically the same, you know, phosphorus-based, uh, uh, smelly, you know, bad for the environment detergents. And you look and you feel, wow, look at all these choices I have. Look at all that. But, but it's actually a false choice. There's no sort of none of the above. You know, you, 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 you can, as long as you choose one of the prescribed pathways or products, then, then you have it. So, yeah, on the one hand, that's overwhelming. And people then do say, okay, I'm going to limit myself in order to have my brand. It's just reassuring. This is my. I go to Starbucks, or I go to Dunk, No, I'm am a Dunkin' Donuts person. I'm a this. I'm a that. And you feel uh, a little, a little contained, or whatever. But it's not the genuine freedom that we're reducing. It's this artificially imposed, confusing noise of choice, and that's noise. Mm-hmm.
1: That's not real granularity. Do you think a lot of this stems back to the Edward Bernays idea like hijacking of individualism and kind of selling us ego? And from that point, it just kind of got worse and worse until it became free social media where ad revenue drives everything.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can go from from Bernays to GM. You know, the General Motors, their whole strategy as an auto company was, okay, Ford is making a car. We're going to make a different brand of car for each kind of person. Are you an Oldsmobile dude or are you a Buick dude? You know, they're going to have these different, I mean, and they were different companies that were brought in eventually, but they wanted to have different branded choice. That was um, Sloan's innovation. Then you go all the way to, say, uh, 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 L. Ron Hubbard and and Werner Earhart, you know, creating using that same kind of notion of individual choice as this path to freedom, all the way to the secret, you know, it becomes this weird kind of new age self-actualization, consumer choice thing. So yeah, and I, I would trace it back if if, you know, to Bernays, but then even before that, all the way back to the Renaissance and the invention of the individual, which, you know, one man, one vote in the enlightenment, we're gonna get out of that dark age, which was people, working in communities and peer-to-peer ways and identifying with their town, that's dark. We're going to move to the light age of enlightenment and your individual freedom, which to me is always the
1: oxymoron. Individuality is the booby prize, not uh, not freedom at all. Do you feel that there's a bit of a catch-22 there in some ways because you could have the ignorance as bliss kind of side of it in a way where you adhere more closely to your culture and and just don't worry too much about trying to individualize. But then for my background with psychology and my interest in things like alchemy and, you know, Eastern philosophy, a lot of the, and, and for my personal journey, even, I've realized that my ability to connect with other people kind of came from me having an ego death and, and in some ways individualizing myself to the point where I felt so comfortable being me that I stopped trying to be somebody else. And that allowed me to connect better with people so there's this weird struggle where I think the individualism is actually a really positive thing because it helps you get to the community, but it can be so easily hijacked right. by ego. Yeah, or
0: by 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 capitalism or something by the market, you know, so that you if you I mean, I'm a Met fan, right? But as well, Korzipsky wouldn't let me say it like that. I root for the Mets, right? But the danger would be to think that I root for the Mets, so what am I? I am i meaning I equal met fan, and that's not good that's now, now my my identity is not if you're going to have something that's individual, if you're really going to have a self then and as part of that paradoxical existence of both self and collective and all that, the self. Should derive should derive from within, you know, and I'm not saying I am not saying everything derives from within, and I'm not going to I'm saying the self part of human nature should be self-generated, as opposed to the self is this the self part is uh, some brand or thing out there that I'm going to grab onto, but yeah, without I mean without the development of a healthy ego, without separating from the mother and experiencing yourself as an individual, you've got nothing to crash. You know, you've got no, uh, you know, there's nothing to let go of at that point.
1: Yeah, I, that, that's one of the things I think that concerns me and that interests me about your take on, on things is where we've kind of gone with turning each other into commodities, you know, through social media and how, you know, one of the things that sickens me the most, I think, honestly, when I'm online is when I watch people I know try to use this manipulative language to sell themselves as a product to other people friends of mine and, and other people in the community. And it feels very much like just a blatant extortion. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to watch. And what does that look like? <laughs> um, unfortunately, the easiest example I can think of now is like life coaches who right. are just really extroverted people. I think j- at the most, you know, that's the core is that they're extroverted. May, and <laughs>
0: They're just people who are professionalizing. Let me tell you what I think.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly exactly <laughs> everybody has a platform now so it's you get enough likes and your opinion is matters but you could also I, I i guess where i was going with that is it's easy to get attached to that digital second self to get an image that you create and curate everybody starts validating it Your, you know your evolutionary biology kicks in you're like oh this is my way to belong to the tribe and then you start running with it and now you've kind of lost track of your own maybe authentic path and...
0: Right, and then your career's depending on that maintaining that. You know, that's why great artists, they kill themselves. I mean, I don't mean death their body. I mean, they kill their, their character and they reinvent themselves. You know, people used to look at someone like Madonna or Michael Jackson when they would keep changing their, their look or their identity or their character or Bowie. You know, they would think that that was some sort of selling out. But in some ways, it's the opposite. It's saying, okay, I know the market wants me to keep doing this guy, but I'm gonna let that one go and invent something. I'm gonna do something else. You know, just just shed that persona like a like a snake sheds its skin and move to something else. That's really scary for people. Or it makes them think like the um that, that well for to artist it's not, but that the character they're playing wasn't really authentic. You know, and that's funny. I remember kids in college who would about halfway through it seems sophomore junior year they would like establish their persona like i'm this guy who wears this hat and talks like this and drinks this scotch and i'm uh, and like wow you know and at first i was like jealous that they found themselves as adults and then i was just sad for them because it's like oh you've just picked the costume that you're gonna wear, you've picked your character and now you can leave college as if you're leaving central casting with your, you know, your role
1: intact. Yeah, I feel like that's the key, right? Attachment, you don't want to be attached to a costume. You want to be able to change the monkey suit.
0: Yeah, and at least know it, you know, and that's the same with reality tunnels, you know, reality tunnels and costumes are kind of the same thing. Let's try on this way of looking at the world. And it's a cool way. And then maybe at some point you pick what's the most effective one for me to have kind of as my default worldview, just so it's easy. I can wake up in the morning and believe gravity works and whatever, you know, just to get through my day, but be flexible enough to be able to, to, to shift them.
1: Yeah. I I realized, you know, again, not to go too many, personal stories here, but coming from Ohio to, to the West Coast to Portland in particular, I was really excited at first because, you know, keep Portland weird, uh-huh. is the whole thing. It's a, it's a very quirky city. And at first I fell in love with that. And then I kind of started to realize that I felt like we were focusing more on keeping Portland weird in the costume of weird rather than keep Portland authentic. So it kind of, it started to feel a little, cliche or it's about you know putting on a different kind of costume don't wear the suit wear the jacket with the studs you know don't wear the, don't have the briefcase have the skateboard it, it was it was almost like a trade totally i know it's funny i remember in in art school there were these
0: kids who like really were artists and i found most of those kids their work wasn't as good it's just like regular people who just put all that energy into the into the making of the art. And it was then that was like in the 80s. And that was when I decided, and this, oh, maybe, maybe this is something I should change too. I mean, I kind of decided not to have any fashion after that. That because I saw sort of the downside of it or that I'm gonna, it's all in my it's all in my work. I am, and I'm so I don't mean this is a good thing or a bad thing. Well I guess it's a good thing. I'm just so I'm already Employing such a mutant lens on the world around me that I'd better wear friggin normal clothes, you know it's like i'm I look so normal, I look like a normal person, you know, so this way nobody can see that I'm like in they live or something. You know, I'm just seeing the through every frigging sign and every traffic light. I'm looking at the power relationships and the oh whoa, the humanity. You know, this it it helps sort of uh uh balance that out.
1: Otherwise, my God. Yeah, I feel like the crazier my ideas get the more single colors I wear, the less logos I have. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And then it'll then there's something fun in that too, because then I feel a little uh
0: like incognito or something you know that I know you know I can go and go to a club and see kids dressed you know like crazy rock and roll stars and stuff, and they got and that's beautiful too, they're expressing themselves, and that's that that can be an art an art in in itself but uh but it is there is it it could be it can get it's really easy to you know, convince ourselves of the, of the role that we're playing, you know, and that, I mean, it's certainly the net is trying to help us do that. You know, they're trying to, to steer us toward our, you know, algorithmically determined consumer profile and get us to act, uh, t- to fall into that. But that's fun too. I enjoy now engaging with some of these algorithms or Google or whatever, and seeing what is it What does it think I am and what is it? And can I change what I'm doing? In other words, to what extent is what the algorithm is saying accurate? In other words, so if I'm doing a bunch of stuff and then some like violent videos start to come up of like the next one and the next one, it's like, oh, is that the natural uh, follow through of what it is I'm thinking right now? You know, it and if it is, how should I adjust the way i 'm thinking so it moves more towards
1: unicorns and daisies you know <laughs> how have how has that gone so far? Do you feel like it 's been a good predictor for you, or do you feel like you 've
0: no it feels like every direction it goes is just bad it takes whatever whatever kind of happy th- thought i 'm having, and it becomes you know darker it leads to you know Hitler or you know the Palestinian suffering or uh, you know, it just goes, you know, algorithms taking over the world or you know,
1: zombies or something. It just, there's almost no, no way. It's probably quite, quite confused by the the interest in Terrence McKenna and the the single color shirts. It doesn't really know how to put those two together.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait a minute, right? Wait, but I mean, they know, they can always win me with like you know, something about fractals or something. They'll always, oh, we got them.
1: <laughs> so you talk about the the mutant lens that you you s- stare through what what does that look like what is what does the world look like to you well it's hard to say because it looks like that to me
0: um good point <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's why i write all these books i mean but the the lens i have now is i'm looking at a a world that at a whose institutions seem designed to repress humans you know that that we don't trust people we don't like people but our our technology companies seem to think that human beings are a problem and that technology is a solution we want to iron out all the paradox and ambiguity and all the stuff where I find beauty and meaning is is seen somehow as this problem. And and even in in I'm finding in social relationships and social settings that you know disagreement is is so difficult for people. They would rather be around just people that agree with them than have a little bit, I mean gosh, can't we, can't we look at the thing differently? And that's, (laughs) that should be it, but no. So everything gets ironed off, you know, this sort of auto tuning of, of reality, this destruction of soul, what, you know, what they've done to poor Ariana is a crime, you know, Ariana Grande, I mean, Um, you know, when I compare her to, you know, a James Brown or something, Uh, and she has such talent, she has such talent, but, I can hear, even my daughter, when we're listening to Ariana in the car, she, sounds like they auto-tuned her, you know? And of course they did. That's, that's what they do. And you lose
1: the human expression. It feels like the human expression, the thing that you're just most bummed about is just the loss of like chaos and difficulty. Is that, I mean, is that kind of at the heart of it?
0: Well, I mean, at the heart of it is, and really is just uh, uh, the seemingly inevitable extinction, you know that that we we are so caught in this weird moment that we can't even uh, uh, we can't see how this brittle uh, 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 this brittle foundation will will end us. And when I see that you know the folks you know at, at Google or somewhere or some of the singularity folks you know who really just say, well, you know, humanity is one stage in information's journey towards complexity and. We should just fade into the background and pass the evolutionary torch to our, our digital successors. That's, that's a problem. I think that underestimates all that we have to offer, all that's, that's going on and, and, and restricts us to this sort of uh, uh, utility value understanding of
1: us. So uh, if, yeah, if I can just play devil's advocate a bit there. Well, you can, but is this your opinion or is it just part of your, is it something you wonder? Well, it's both. All right, you know both. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about you. I think because there's so many things that I agree with you on, but there are some things I feel like you know, having read your work and whatnot, that I feel I'm, I'm not with you on entirely. You know, I, one of those things probably I should warrant that I used to call myself a, a transhumanist. So I don't as much anymore because I have found it to be a bit of a belief system that is a bit radical in a way I don't think of, but there, but I do find some sense of, um, well, let me, let me phrase it this way. I I do think to some extent there is a danger of becoming too attached to things as they are and expecting us to kind of cling to the meat vessel when maybe there is a trajectory. Now, I don't know. I think there are things about being a human that are amazing, unique, but I do see a lot of the things that we celebrate, um, in terms of the messiness As also the sources of, you know, like an alcoholic parent who might be pissed off that they didn't become that quirky musician. So they beat their wife and that kid grows up, you know, a kid grows up in that family with a super hyperactive amygdala. And then they go on to need their father's approval and become the president of the United States. And, you know, the the messiness also begets some of the worst of our our characteristics. So I, I do. Right. But, but replacing us with a computer doesn't necessarily help that either. No, but I do wonder if there are things we can do with the technology to help us, you know, assuage.
0: Oh, I think we can. It's just that so far, because the technologies are owned by investors, the only thing that they're being programmed for is how to grow the stock. Of the shareholders who happen to have invested in that product, so I totally agree. I mean, I love um, so far the only use I've loved of virtual reality is um, there's a, a lab near uh, uh, it's kind of part of uh, USC, I guess, uh, where they do um, recreation of of. Humvees getting blown up in the Gulf War for vets who were because it's very common that you're in your Humvee, whatever, and you blow up and your friend dies next to you and all that. So they recreate these scenes with smell and sight and everything. And it like really does help cure them of the PTSD they got because they can slow down the experience with a therapist there. And I did it because I lost my best friend in a car crash like that. And I did it with this guy, Skip Rizzo, this uh, scientist there. And it, the, when it was working, the thing that made it really work is I knew that the therapist could see what I mean. I knew that I, this is what it was like. Yeah, you got it. Now you see, because he's in there with you. And it's like, to be understood, you know, And and the technology allowed that, to happen in ways that my words telling the story however many times I did, couldn't. Re-being there, with him there, reliving it in slow motion, um, wow. So yeah, I mean, technologies can certainly, uh, when, when they're programmed to help people, they're fabulous, wonderful, beautiful. When those of us programming them are so steeped in the values of capitalism that we're thinking, okay, this will make you a better worker. This will get you a better job. You know, what we have to be able to do once we have these sorts of powers is challenge the underlying assumptions of what are we programming for? You know, what are we optimizing? And as long as we're optimizing for, um, the, the richness of human experience to 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 reduce pain, uh to promote compassion, you know, to, to, uh, stop war, then yeah, let's go for it. Let's play, you know, let's play. I uh, you know, Genesis Peorage, he uh he they uh you know went towards not even transgender but, but pandrogyny, you know, using surgeries and stuff. I mean, I don't know how how they feel about it now that you know, because it's a lot of burden, all this surgery, you know, it hurts 10, 20, 30 years later, but yeah, go for it, experiment, play, but it's not, we're not doing it in order to reduce the complexity of the human experience because that's, that's a direction I don't want us, I don't want us to go. And right now when people want things simpler, It's not the best time for them to be designing their babies.
1: Let's say in a perfect world, we had um, a brain computer interface that was created slash owned, you know, like a Mozilla or something, an open source piece of hardware software system that allowed you to walk through somebody else's consciousness to kind of have, you know, a pure form of empathy to have your words uh, translate with their purest meaning behind it, would that be something that would be exciting to you? Or would that almost just take away so much of the messiness of communication and figuring each other out that that would be, that would be a a kind of a gross simplification?
0: If you could walk through someone else's mind with perfect fidelity, then you're not walking through their mind anymore. You know, then, then you are them.
1: Yeah. And, and, and to that extent, I think that's kind of, that'd be kind of beautiful, right? So,
0: yeah, but that's like reincarnation. Then you come back. If you come back, if you're in there as them, can you have your memory of who you are while you're them? I see what you're saying.
1: Kind of like a birth amnesia.
0: I think you would need that to, in order to go in there as them, because who they are, how they think about the world is so. De- the way they see is so dependent on what they saw before. I don't think we end up actually being able to get there, but I think all these things would be fun, you know, with consenting adults. I want to go and, to the extent that I can. Can I sit up next to your bed while you dream and (laughs) watch your dreams and be in there? That'd be fun. I'll do it. It's a little creepy, but you can do it. Yeah. I'll play. (laughs) I'll play, but it's played. It's play, it's so different than, it's like if you're gonna put body parts on me, I don't want something useful. I don't want another arm so I could lift more stuff at the Home Depot. I want a a sex tail, you know, that orgasms and stuff. I want, you know, I want weird fun. Mm
1: <laughs> I want weird. I feel like that's the bumper sticker to describe you. I want weird fun. <laughs> but right, but I'm not I'm not saying we have to stay as
0: we are. I'm not saying we have to, you know, somehow respect our historical boundaries. What I'm saying is before we launch willy-nilly into a digital sphere defined by Google shareholders, let's consider what values we want to retrieve in this renaissance, because I think renaissances work by retrieving and rebirthing value systems that got repressed. And particularly the digital media environment that we're moving into, it's all about memory. It's all memory. That's why there's almost, and, and people are, are upset about it, but it's why there's so little creativity in a digital age, because it's, it's this memory. This is a memory. It's, the, the electronic age television was about hallucination and creativity and storytelling and all that. Digital is kind of not, you know, we're trying to do it a little bit with our game of Thrones, like soap operas, but digital is memory. What did he say? When did he say it? You know, uh, uh, what happened? It, it's a, uh, and people retrieving all different styles and things. It's like a kid will discover the monkeys now, you know, and watch all the episodes and know them and, you know, they they find you unearth something. And that's a different, it's this kind of archive.org, you know, journey through culture. So it's a different, it's a different thing. And I, I, I don't mean to to disparage it, just like I never disparaged DJing, you know, DJing, And people were saying, oh, they're just DJs, they're not playing music. It's like, no. The content or, or the medium of the last era, you know, which was records, have become the content of this new medium. So we're not playing instruments; we're playing records, which are playing instruments through previous musicians, and that's not degraded in any. It's just different. It's meta. It's something
1: else. Do you, Do you think we're oversaturated with our own recent memories, and that's blocking us from the more like ancient wisdom. I mean, is that kind of where you're coming from with that a little bit that we're not able to quite rebirth or have that true Renaissance because the waters are a bit muddied by all of the stuff that we're doing now? I mean, I think, I think we
0: can, and will have that
1: Renaissance. I wouldn't say
0: it's muddied so much as the platforms that we're using are biased toward only retrieving really negative sensationalist memories. You know, whatever memory is going to get us to click or to be afraid uh, is going to win right now. It's that attention economy
1: thing doesn't really work with a meaningful recall. Yeah, I would love to see the social media system that recommends Wikipedia articles and YouTube tutorials based on your recent searches so that you can more quickly find your way towards things that you want to grow into
0: yeah that'd be interesting exactly so it's like oh you're i see you're visiting neo-nazi sites well why don't you look at the actual history of fascism in the early 20th century from mussolini through hitler before you and before you go further down this path my son yeah i mean and that would be that's the same friggin' ai just programmed to do a different thing and i'm all for that it's just So then, like, there's these folks who make AIs that help nudge people, right? Nudging is the new thing. So you get nudged to be, say something nice to a coworker, or you get nudged to smile at your child. And while I don't mind those sorts of things as remedial help for those of us who've de-socialized to the point that we don't know to smile or to smile at our kid or something, um, I would think of it as a training. And that those things, those nudge programs, should be developed, and they're not. The nudge programs are developed to increase your dependence on them over time. But I would love them to be developed so that's like, okay, you're going to go on a 16-week nudging, remedial nudging, uh, program to teach you how to be this person, so you can then
1: let the program go. Yeah. How do we How do we do that? How do we create a market that actually rewards? stuff that isn't terribly profitable because when you look at outrage when you look at you know the attention economy and and you know the whole idea that we pay more attention to things that scare us or uh, upset us than we do things that make us happy and we have this investor economy well, how do we get to the forefront of the conversation and to people you know and just to interest people really how do we get people interested who otherwise have been kind of I don't want to say indoctrinated or brainwashed necessarily but Who have been so programmed by you know the kind of more narcissistic or attention ad revenue model that um they they don't really see an interest in that kind of self-actualization or push towards you know positive user experience
0: well i mean that this is part of why i wrote all these kind of business books you know i i felt like maybe i still feel like that if we can convince business that it's in their own best long-term interests to create companies that are profitable rather than enterprises that are are addicted to growth in order to please shareholders. I mean, shareholders don't generally like revenue because revenue turns into dividends and dividends are taxed high and they don't want that. They want capital gains, so they want the company to grow. And growing a company means sort of increasing everything. You can never reach a sustainable profit level. So when, you know, I always talk about when, when Twitter was making $2 billion a year, I thought that was, would have been a great plateau for them. Two billion a year off a 140 character messaging app, yay, we won. And when they announced that, they were considered an abject failure. By Wall Street because they had peaked at two billion, didn't look like they were going to make more. There were all these people who wanted a hundred x, thousand x return on their investment, and it was lost. And the only the, the the only thing pushing Twitter away from its highly profitable model was this growth requirement. So if I could somehow, I was trying to you know convince founders and investors. To say, are you okay with just becoming a millionaire? You know, would it be so terrible just to make 20, $30 million off this company and then move on, you know, and, and, and then, or, or just keep running it and enjoy it? You know, and that was, you know, very few can do that. Like um, Yancey Strickler of, of, of uh, 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 what's it called? Kickstarter, he did that. Um, Scott Hefferman with Meetup kept, I mean, I was on the, the Board of Advisors Of that from the beginning and investors were getting really antsy because there was no exit there was no thing you know and finally he sells it to WeWork, whatever and he got out he didn't do exponential scaling but he made his tens of millions he's going to be fine really 10 20 million dollars is enough to live really i mean beyond what
1: most of us imagine yeah there's two things there that i guess i'd be interested in hearing more about one is how do you stop something that maybe is it worth stopping something that has traction and it seems like people are lifting up and you start making crazy growth by virtue of people's interest. And then there's the second part which would be what is the well a lot of what I find interesting with our conversation around technology is that at the end of the day it is kind of perpetuated by the human condition and and that idea that you're talking about where people just want more and more that you know scarcity mindset where it's like i can't get enough i if i'm going to become immortal and, and be a hero and have a legacy and the world's going to love me forever i need to make billions and billions of dollars and that's the only way i'll, I'll ever be safe and loved What what is it that creates that kind of uh, mindset and and what is it that we can do to bring that back down to the ground <laughs> well you're the one who
0: took sight You're the one who took psychology. I mean, it's probably something in their family of origin, right? Some something happened there. Um, We gotta, you know, love our little kids more unconditionally and create. You know, I think it takes a village. I think the the isolation of the nuclear family has been really bad for kids. You know, some of them have siblings, which helps, but it's not. I don't know. I feel like a, a, a neighborhood, a kibbutz or something uh, would, would help alleviate some of that. Um, and a lot of it is the economic operating system. You know, we, we accept extractive growth-based corporate capitalism with a, a interest-based centralized monopoly currency as natural economics. You know, and we've we've lost sight of the fact that this was invented by a very particular group of people at a particular moment in history to promote an agenda that's not even around anymore. It was to preserve the aristocracy in the face of the rising middle class. So if that's the operating system that we're using in a 21st century digital economy, well, no wonder Uh, it's a it's a scarcity based market market model in an infinitely abundant digital economy. So what happens, you know,
1: you, you crush humanity. Yeah. Do you see any glimmers of light to usurp the economic model? Or Yeah.
0: Oddly enough, you know, I, you know, and I wrote this book throwing, well, I wrote a book called life Inc in 2006 or seven, making this initial argument and that was kind of laughed out of the room um, until the stock market crash and the mortgage crisis. And then they're like, oh, well, that's a little bit real, but there's nothing we can do. So then I wrote Throwing Rocks at the Google bus to say, oh, no, there is something we can do. We can move towards distributism and, 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 and what, what a decentralized economy would look like and worker ownership and, and, and uh, currencies optimized for the velocity of transaction rather than the extraction of value and all that. And uh, people laughed at that. And when that came out in like you know 2015 or so, but now, no people are taking that seriously. I just got invited. They're doing the uh, 75th anniversary at Bretton Woods, which was the conference where they, right after World War II, where they pegged all the global currencies on the dollar, and the variety of people showing up at this from Peter Thiel to Steve Mnuchin, you know, to me to to Charles Eisenstein. um, It's like oh. They, are, they finally understand that we can't have a growth-based economy anymore, that we need to move towards this other, some kind of a blockchain-y, lateral, horizontal thing. It's going to happen. We have to transition to that. How do we do that in a way that's least threatening to the billionaires?
1: Yeah, Do probably a common question, uh, but do you have any hope for... Basic income. Do you think that that's a good path forward, or is that something that you think is kind of a a pipe dream, utopian pipe dream? I
0: mean, I I've got a whole lot of arguments for it in throwing rocks to Google bus because on paper, it works. Certainly as a transition, you know, in a world where everybody's been artificially dependent on corporate employment for income. When we're when we're at a place where we're looking at how can we invent products that people don't need in order to give other people jobs so they can have the money they need to buy basic goods and services. That's silly, right? Because the food is in abundance, the housing's in abundance, so we should just let people have it. Where I started to question universal basic income is when I'm doing a keynote at Uber talking about the inequality and what they're doing to people and how they're you know, uh, paying unlivable wages. And they come back to me and say, oh, we read in your book about universal basic income. You know, so they're looking at it as a way, how can we continue to pay people unlivable wages? You know, how can we continue to basically exploit people Plus, the way they look at universal basic income is, well, the government will print money, give it to people so they can spend it with us. So Uber ends up sitting on more and more and more of the of the the world's capital. So I don't like that it makes capital move in one direction. You know, I do like universal basic income when I think of it as giving people the money they need to be a little entrepreneurial and start their local pizzerias and, and start – Um, uh, you know, developing businesses that are sustainable rather than growth-based and doing work with each other. But it it looks to me like most of the current visions of UBI are more about giving people just enough money so they can spend out every month at the the same, you know, TJ Maxx, you know, and buy Walmart Chinese crap you know, rather than develop something. But sure, as a transition stage, I don't have a problem with it. I'll go on Gang Yang or whatever it's called. Yang Gang? <laughs> yeah, Yang Gang, I think, yeah. I'll go on the Yang Gang for that. I saw him talk at uh, economy. And uh, he, it, it, he's right, you know, and especially if you don't call it income, but you call it a... Uh, a, a, a That's not, not a subsidy, but basically a, a dividend. You know, so your your country's doing well. We're making lots of money. So it's America is this big co-op. It's like one big REI. You know, and at the end of the year, you get you know 250 bucks to buy a pair of uh you know a new pair of hiking boots or something. If you spend enough money, uh, it's, it's sort of like that. Or in in Alaska, you know, because the land is being taken for oil, the people who live
1: there get to participate some in the profits, and that. That makes sense. Yeah, I've wondered, do you think it'd be a good option or would it just bastardize the idea of basic income if we made the money restricted to certain expenses like room and board, you know, food, shelter, health. And that way it wasn't, you know, or, yeah, you know, a certain percentage of it so that we knew that it was going towards basic goods and survival rather than necessarily pure capitalism. It's really tricky.
0: It's tricky. I mean, yeah, that's, the, that's the, normal, the the normal left approach, right? To incentivize certain kinds of purchasing or whatever. Now, I think the more, the more open you are with it, the better, you know? So someone's going to buy nitrous oxide with it. You know, it's just that's what's going to happen. But, but hopefully they'll get an apartment in which to do it first.
1: You know, hopefully, yeah, the priorities are still kind of more <laughs> sorted out.
0: Find a place to do your nitrous, then buy your, then buy your nitrous. But you know, there's going to be all kinds. I mean, say, I mean, the real question you're asking is, can unemployed people even be trusted with unearned income? you know with the dole and I think so. I mean yeah, food stamps are are a fine thing especially when someone has kids and all, but they find ways around it. People spend their food stamps or give them to someone else and they, they don't, any restriction you tend to put on something, someone's developing a work around.
1: Well, I think it's and for me it's less about trust I think and more just about the fact that I know the human condition can can be swayed right now so easily. So if you have a way to kind of prevent because, cause your big thing with early internet, right, is that you had this beautiful potentiality. There was, there was this possibility for the true renaissance, and then all the yuppies came in and just started putting down white picket fences and isolating everybody inside their cars, and you know, you know what I mean, metaphorically, and and it got, it got basically commodified. I was just wondering if there was a way to potentially, you know keep that commodification at bay while we make the transition and, and hopefully keep it from being something that just goes towards the corporations uh, and more maybe towards, you know, co-ops that give food and, and local, you know, homeowners who are renting out a, a room in their house. You would I would hope, I mean, I don't know how you legislate it.
0: You know, I would I would hope that a universal basic income program would be accompanied. Buy, at least one PDF. You know that's like local, local, uh, local economic resilience handbook. Now that you've got food and shelter, here's how you develop a local economy. You know, here's how you can have a local currency with which to transact with each other, and here's how you can, you know, really create a chamber of commerce that will uh, 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 help your town. You know. Uh, help your town potentiate, to use your word, the the exchange of goods and services between people with goods and people with needs and people with skills and people
1: who need those skills. Yeah, that seems like a, a bit of a narrative problem too, and something that I'm really interested in. You you put some line in your book, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it really got me thinking about the way our novels and films have you know, the hero's journey framework. And they have these very clear cut villains and, and, and good guys. And it's very much like world savers versus, you know, the world enders. And it's, and it feels like that kind of binary mindset where I feel like if you watch a story enough times, your brain is reshaping itself to expect that story in your life as well. Yeah. So it feels like we need that change of narrative and, and, and maybe to tie that together, you know, local versus global is one narrative change, but are are there you can either speak to that, or are there other narrative changes that you think would be huge right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the biggest one is we ache for closure, for the conclusion. You know, that's why when we're talking about messiness, I don't mean just keep the messiness of your neurosis or the messiness of racism. You know, I don't mean it historically, but being able to tolerate paradox and ambiguity. I'm both a member of this culture and an individual outside this culture. How can I be both at the same time? You can be both at the same time, you know? Oh my God. You know, that, that being alive is, is experiencing that dynamic, that both, that, that ambiguity, that, that incompleteness. And we have so many movies and, and plays and books and everything that end with, here's what happened. Here's who got to be got to sit on the frigging throne, you know, you know, as compared to that last episode of the Sopranos was existed. What happened? Was he killed? Maybe, maybe not. Every single moment of this guy's life is like any of ours, except heightened. He might die at any second, but so might you. And it could go black that fast. That's what that last episode said. And that's like, Whoa, um, I'm not we're not gonna give you an ending. Fuck you, you know, and and today it's like everybody is so addicted. Even you look at the difference between the Disney Star Wars movies and George Lucas's Star Wars movies. What George Lucas's second three Star Wars movies was doing, even with Jajar Binks, you know, and all the problems that they had he was turning the Jedi into the bad guys, you know, and showing this is a corrupt elite institution. That's maybe not as bad, but is pretty bad too. Um, What does that mean? It's like, Oh my gosh, it's all relative. There is no good guys. Ah. Um, It it was not a black and white world. You know, however much uh, that first movie led people to think it was going to be.
1: Yeah. That's something I'm, I'm trying to fight for. I think more in my own way these days is the gray, like it, people more uncomfortable or more comfortable, I guess, with discomfort, you know, with ambiguity. I always find it so shocking that um, we aren't more excited about the people who we meet who disagree with us because I'm like, that's your chance to learn. That's your chance to get a whole new perspective on reality and to either, you know, heighten the resolution of your own perception or to gain something new entirely. And yet now it feels like that's, you know, we need to immediately shut it down. We don't want to have a dialogue. Right.
0: So that's why you got to just get the ground rules. So it's like, okay, so there's a guy at the bar in a MAGA hat willing to talk. And I could see setting ground was like to ask him up front. All right. I'm a New York Jewish intellectual. Do you want me dead? Do you want me dead? And if they answer, no, honestly, no, I do not want you dead. Then we have the beginnings of a relationship here, right? <laughs> he doesn't want me dead. You know, as a Jew, that's actually that's a <laughs> that's Low a minority standard, opinion but a good <laughs> globally, start. <laughs> you know, in terms of the global history, so um, that to me is starting from the good place. But you know, once you can establish that much, it's like, well, now what? What's going to really? There's all these ideas about other stuff, but at least we have this basis. You want me alive, and I want you alive, and that's kumbaya by by modern standards. You know, but but you know what I mean. Once you get to there, you should be able to talk. And see, I mean that's what I do all the time in order to really understand. And you know, on my podcast, I try to speak very often, not in the voice of Trump, but to defend what's going on there. And sometimes we we knee jerk. I mean, I watched the uh, New York Times and MSNBC coverage of Trump supposedly calling Meghan Markle nasty. I don't know if you saw it. it was this recent thing. And what happened so Donald Trump the president from the US took this big trip to England to like visit the queen and stuff with his family. And right before he left, the Evening Sun or something this one of the UK tabloid papers played this tape for Trump of Meghan Markle in 2016 before Trump is president saying, I think he's a misogynist and if he became president, I'd probably just move, to, move out of the country. I'll just move to Canada. Like many of us said in 2016. And they said, so what do you think of that? And he goes, well, I didn't know that she was, was nasty. I, I, you know, I thought she liked me, whatever, but I think she'll be a good monarch and I'm glad to see there's an American in the royal family now. And that comes out you know, within an hour Trump calls Meghan Markle nasty. He said she's nasty, nasty ho, you know, and spinning all this stuff and saying, oh, will Prince Harry, who's the husband, will he even show up now at the lunch at Buckingham Palace after Trump calls her nasty? And they kept equating Markle and nasty, Markle, nasty, Markle, nasty. And Trump's like, I didn't say that. That's not what I said. And they say oh trump lies about calling markle nasty and finally during the trip he goes oh well this is what i said i said that i didn't know that she was being had been nasty that she was being nasty she said these nasty things about me oh now trump admits that he said nasty and so i mean when i write about that it's like look here they set what's called a tabloid trap for this guy they then use this against him and now we've got the new york times writing articles about Markle being nasty which is what's that for you know so and and i know that all the trump people are looking at that as this ridiculous entrapment horrible which it is and if we can't admit that even from the good lefty progressive side then uh you know then 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 it's lost so yeah i think it's really valuable to be able as you would say, without VR even, you can put on their head, you can experience the media through their perspective. They were in a a battle against what they saw as the entrenched forces of neoliberalism. It was a revolution by any means necessary, even if it means getting Russia's help. By any means necessary, get these Clintons out of power. And that's where now they're out in all this trouble,
1: you know? Yeah, if I went back to uh, Ohio and during the election, and I felt like I was a secret agent, like getting both sides of this, like I was this. I saw the story. I was in the story, living it, like Gonzo journalism. And then I watched somebody tell a story about it, and I was like, the the way the media is talking about everything feels so different from the actual experience that I'm having, uh, you know, in Portland or in Southern Ohio, and it's just. And I was hearing both sides say the exact same things with just a different flavor on it. And I'm like, it's so sad that we're not actually working together to fix the system above us rather than fighting and letting the system above us kind of extort that chaos. It it just seems really unfortunate. But that seems, you know, as a a media theorist, something that you would take great chagrin with, you know, the the way newscasting and media and, and... all of that has kind of stoked the fire, you know, for the sake of sales.
0: Yeah. I mean, largely. Yeah. It's because they get more hits, you know, it's, it's how you, it's, it's how you do business, but, and I get that they believe it. I know Rachel Maddow believes everything she's saying. And she comes from, I mean, it's a false equivalence to say Rachel Maddow on the one side and say Sean Hannity on the other, you know, I don't, I mean, I still don't, and this is, I just don't know if someone like Sean Hannity believes what he's saying, or if he's playing this kind of rhetorical role, if he's playing some kind of a job. I don't know sometimes, because it sounds like, oh, they don't believe that, you know? Or maybe they do, I just can't tell. And that's that's how divergent
1: things have gotten. Yeah, I always try to remind myself that everybody's the the hero of their own story, but I do think some of the heroes can still lie to themselves. So,
0: yeah, I would think so. Which is why you don't want to get too individualized, you know? And that's why again I look to look to the ancients, you know? I look to the Jews who said, you know, they were all concerned when we were going to move from an oral Torah to a written Torah because now we're not going to have to gather together to hear the stories. People are going to be looking at it individually and they're going to go all crazy. So they made rules. They said, you're not allowed to open the Torah unless you have nine other people. You're supposed to have a minion in order to engage with it. So you've got people to disagree and kind of check you. And when they stopped that during like inquisition times and they let people read alone in their attics, that's when you get the crazy stuff, the crazy Kabbalah, Isaac, Luria, you know, uh, uh, messianic, nuttiness people you know waiting for the moshiach is coming tuesday at 10am you know that's when you don't have the 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 group of differing people to you know counter your reality tunnel with a bunch of other ones
1: yeah as much as i've kind of pushed myself towards what i would consider agnostic these days i i've found myself more and more lately thinking we need more ritual you know like a secular church you know probably what you would think of as well as a a commons some some way to have a a space where we can celebrate each other's victories whether it's just like hey let's take everybody in the community who got a job promotion this week and throw a party for everybody whose birthday it is well you know what i mean something like that
0: welcome back my son (laughs) welcome back yes
1: i promise Uh, i'm on team human (laughs)
0: But, you know, I know who did that really well. I don't know what else they did. So they might be bad on some other well. The Quakers were all about that, right? Those friendship halls and stuff. You go to a Quaker. I went to one Quaker church service and stuff. There was no praying or anything. I mean, they sang a song and then they just sit there. You just sat there. And then someone got up and said, you know, oh, my niece had a baby daughter whatever. Someone else, you know, oh, my, uh, uh, I think I'm going to lose my job and I'm worried. And it was just like, whoa, is this a 12 step meeting? Is this, what is this, what is this? And it was like, um, they have a name for it, not brotherhood, um, but it's like that, uh, fellowship. They said it was about fellowship, which also is male, I guess, and it's in, in the root, personship, whatever, but it was a uh, um, team, that was team human happening right there. It's probably very cathartic, I could imagine. And bonding, and practical yeah. too. It's like, oh, you can come stay with us for a couple of days while they fumigate your house for those nasty termites. I'm sorry it happened to you.
1: So I'm, I'm curious maybe to kind of find a good way to, you know, make sure I'm not taking up your time here. But one of the questions I, I feel like is a good good outro is just how how we stay social and authentic while maintaining progress. That's something that I feel like is a big part of your, your argument. I would love to kind of have that take away from you. Progress is a tricky word, right? Positive progress,
0: so, yeah. Um, and positive progress, to me, means moving toward the possibility of non-extinction. you know, again, low standards because <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Because you could we could, yeah, i think I think progress, to me means developing, you know, social institutions and technologies that help. Move towards a more sustainable, less destructive, and exploitative, uh, uh, you know, planetary system. And how do we do the progress while at the same time staying sane? Um, I think that you can only move toward that progress if you stay sane. So one thing I've been been arguing for since around I don't know nineteen ninety nine, I wrote this article for Adbusters called the sabbath revolt. And but I was arguing that what if we took one day a week and unplugged from all technology, didn't produce, didn't consume the Jews used to call it sabbath. You know, you take one day a week and celebrate that you're okay just the way you are, like Mr. Rogers would say that you're that we are sacred and you use that one day to find other people and be with them and and celebrate, be with your family and do all that. And if you really can't do that to look at why, or if it's really distasteful to wanna do that, look at why. And, and I think that that would help give us the, the grounding that we need to develop all of this progress in you know, uh, positive, positive ways. Whereas if you're so caught up 24 seven, in that whatever this digital rat race you know twitter war follower acquisition game that people are in if you can't let that go then um, you allow the value systems of these of these pieces of software to replace whatever value systems that that you might actually have
1: yeah i love that take a day to ground
0: once a week it's beautiful. And then it will. You will go back. I mean, you can't help it. If you're like one of us who thinks about this stuff all the time, you're going to sneak, you know, you're going to be with your grandpa, your grandma, and they're going to say something and you're going to not be able to help, but I got to Let me jot that down because I'm going to be able to use it in a piece on Monday, or that's going to apply to this piece of software that I'm developing, or that's what I got to go tell Sergei tomorrow at the Google meeting about why he can't build a brain like that you know that that's you you get those insights when you're you know but you don't tend to get them if you're taking your family to the to the ball game you don't really get it cuz you're still in the middle of the circus at that point you kind of have to be unplugged from you know uh, commercial culture to do it to get just make eye contact a little bit have sex hold someone's hand uh, you know these are really cool and grounding things no matter how good your vr sex thing is reality just tracks it renders so fast you can turn your head as fast as you want and it's going to render back there you know
1: before you get there yeah we got a good we got a good computer system in these bodies it's-
0: it's really good you know or or the the grad student that's making this simulation you know she's keeping it running behind (laughs) me right now right it's happening there even though i'm not looking at it
1: i don't even see a single glitch that's amazing rarely (laughs) rarely just the black cat i'm on
0: the right drugs
1: (laughs) (laughs) aren't we all things open (laughs) (laughs) douglas man i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today man
0: oh thanks for doing
1: it